Welcome to today's Lux Research webinar. My name is Kevin C. I'm the Vice President of Digital Products, and I'll be hosting today's webinar. Uh, and the topic of today's webinar is a discussion on the uh, intersection of, of digital technologies with the evolution of the power industry. And today's speaker is Katrina Westerhoff, a senior analyst here at Lux Research. Uh, before we get started, a few rules of engagement. Um, throughout the webinar, you can type questions as we go. Please type them in the Q&A box, not in the chat box, uh, and we will track them and feed them in at the end of the webinar. Uh, time permitting, we'll answer as many questions as we can. If your question does not get answered, um, we'll follow up uh, after the fact. Um, so all attendee phones are on mute to minimize background noise. And at this point, I would like to introduce Lux Research's Katrina Westerhoff. Thank you, Kevin. And thanks to everyone on the line today for joining us. As Kevin mentioned, today I'm going to be talking about the digital transformation of the power industry. But first, I want to introduce Lux Research to those who might not be familiar with us. Uh, so Lux Research helps companies drive growth through technology innovation. We combine data from primary research with analysis and opinions that challenge traditional thinking and, and help our clients make better decisions for their future success. And our team here has both technical expertise and business acumen alongside advanced analytics that help us generate more insight for our clients. And for clients who've worked with us in the power sector before, uh, this sentiment might sound familiar. So I want to talk about digital and power today, but I don't want to talk about smart meters. Because for a long time, smart meters were really synonymous with the idea of digital in the power space. It's all you would hear about. And smart meters are really not that smart, they really can't do all that much. So they're just about the lowest level of digital tool that we can use in the power space right now. And they on their own are definitely not the right tool to tackle the challenges that the power industry is facing today. So what I do want to talk about today is first what those challenges are, then the digital tools that we have at our disposal to address those challenges, and finally the right strategies for deploying those tools in what is a, a pretty complex industry. So let's start by talking about the challenges facing the industry. And for those of you who know the power space well, this will be pretty familiar, but it'll also be pretty short, so hang in there. Let's start with renewables. And we've seen huge momentum growing around renewables. So we now have almost 800 gigawatts of solar and wind capacity installed worldwide, and the two combined have outpaced fossil fuels in new capacity additions. And looking forward, that's not going to slow down. So those of you who follow climate policy will recognize what this is a map of, so this is all of the countries that have committed to the Paris Climate Agreement and have not backed out on that commitment, so everybody except the U.S. right now. And we're also seeing cities and states and, and countries that are um, making these ambitious commitments of 100% renewables. And similarly, we're seeing companies that are making the same commitments. So the RE100 now has, at last count, 116 members that have made that same 100% renewables commitment. And this includes big names like IKEA and Axo Nobel and, and Nike. But all of this change that we're seeing is, is really a challenge because a grid that's powered by renewables is very different from a grid that's powered by fossil fuels. Renewables generate power when the sun is shining and when the wind is blowing, which is not a constant thing. So they're variable both on a moment by moment basis and also on an hour by hour or a season by season basis. And that means that compensating for those fluctuations is difficult. So we see things like the infamous California duck curve, which shows the rapid ramp rate that's required for conventional generation as solar production is slowing down in the evening. We see negative wholesale electricity prices 
at times of high production and the curtailment that results from that. And we also see a need for new ways to keep the grid stable, like the enhanced frequency response tender that National Grid in the UK held last summer to deal with the increased frequency volatility that comes from when you put a lot of wind on your grid. So renewables are making the power system much more variable, which is challenging. And besides renewables, we've seen over the last several years the rise of distributed generation. So this is power generation capacity near to where the power customer is going to be using it. So our grid has conventionally always looked like this. It's been very centralized and simple and, and linear. We generate power in, in, in uh, centralized locations. We transmit it over long distances to distribution systems, which bring it to the customer who consumes it. But now suddenly this is a thing, so you can put solar panels on your roof and generate your own power. Um, and, and in generating that power, you can uh, supply your own needs, but also you're feeding some of that power back into the grid. And this is a big thing right now. This isn't a, a small number of customers that are doing it. It's, it's a lot of people that are putting solar on their, their roofs. And if we look at a country like Australia, for example, more than 20% of homes in Australia currently have rooftop solar. So this is an enormous number of, of customers that are really doing this. And when we put that much rooftop solar in the edges of the distribution network, not only is it going to be generating power inconsistently, because this is solar power, so it's generating during the day when the sun is shining, but it's also pushing that power back through the distribution system, where power was really only ever meant to flow in the opposite direction. And that means that we need to rethink how we manage this system, because it affects the way that we operate the system in things like controlling voltage, um, or uh, affecting the, the infrastructure that we need to be able to support that system. And this has become pretty widely recognized. Now, distributed generation can be a tremendous asset, but that's only if you're prepared for it. So the grid is becoming much more distributed at the same time. And on top of all that, we're seeing an awful lot of headlines like this one lately, these horrible, catastrophic infrastructure failures like what we're seeing in, in Puerto Rico right now. And unfortunately, this is only going to get worse. Because if we look at the causes here, if we look at natural disasters and the way that they're trending, with climate change, natural disasters are on the rise. And that combined with aging infrastructure means we're going to see more and more of these reliability issues. So a lot in power is changing right now. And generation is getting more variable with the growth of renewables. The entire system is getting more distributed with the growth of distributed generation. And at the same time, we're seeing the growth of other types of distributed energy resources, so things like home batteries and, and smart thermostats. And then also the grid is becoming more vulnerable as natural disasters are increasingly winning against aging infrastructure. And all of these things are happening at the same time, which is making a system that really hasn't seen a lot of change in the last century suddenly very complex. And the result of that is that incumbents are facing new pressures and need to adapt both technologically and in their business models, and outsiders have unique opportunities to provide solutions to the industry. So we've talked about three really impactful trends that are challenging the power industry right now, with renewables, with distributed generation, and with vulnerability. And these are big challenges, and smart meters are not going to be the tool that fixes them, but smarter use of digital tools can. So we need a toolbox to solve these problems. So next, let's walk through the digital building blocks that can truly make a difference here. So this is the digital toolbox as it relates to power. And the digital toolbox is a framework that we use a lot here at Lux to help companies think about their own digital transformation. This is an exhaustive. There are a lot of other tools that we could squeeze in here, but these are all tools that are at our disposal to help us solve the problems that are facing the power industry today. And for today, I'm going to focus on these three 
AI, blockchain, and edge computing, because these are three of the hottest topics that our clients are asking us about right now. And for each of these, I want to talk about a single example of the many, many examples that exist of how these tools can address one of the problems that we identified earlier. So let's start with AI. And AI means a lot of things. So this map is a taxonomy of AI techniques and applications. And I'm not going to talk about the differences between these, but the key advantage of AI is that it can take a very complex system with large data sets and draw conclusions from it. And machine learning is really the hero here for the power grid, and it's really become quite pervasive in many applications within power. So let's look at how AI can solve a problem in the power grid. So we talked earlier about how renewables generate power when they want to generate power, um, and unfortunately, that means that it's difficult to get a good feel for what your production from renewables is going to look like tomorrow, or even in some cases in, in the next hour or the next five minutes. So if you're looking a day ahead, for example, for wind production forecasting, you might see 20% error um, in, in your forecast, and that's, that's pretty typical. So the trend that we're looking at here is the growth of renewables, and the challenge that we need to address is low visibility into the production profile. So clearly here, there's a role for machine learning and improving forecasting accuracy. And let's look at an example of a company that's doing that. So this is a company called Utopus Insights. Utopus is a spin-out from IBM Research and Velco, which is a grid operator in Vermont. Um, and Utopus launched just this past spring, spring of 2017. And one element of what this company does is they use deep learning combined with what they call hyperlocal weather forecasts. So these are weather forecasts with a resolution of about one square kilometer. And they use that alongside a whole host of other data streams. And with deep learning, they're able to make better predictions based on that data. And as a result, they can achieve higher accuracy forecasts than conventional methods. So I mentioned earlier, 80% accuracy for wind forecasting a day ahead is pretty normal. Utopus claims that they can do 91% for wind and 94% for solar. So this is a case where we're seeing that machine learning combined with the right data sets can mean more accurate forecasts and that helps us to better handle the variability of renewables as we're looking at an increasingly renewable grid. All right, so let's look at another technology. Let's look at blockchain. And blockchain is a distributed database technology, so just a quick overview of, of blockchain. Um, by distributed, I mean that this database is hosted in several places, which are the nodes of the system. And every time there's a transaction or a piece of data that needs to be logged, that information is broadcasted to all of the other nodes in the system, and these nodes will validate and, and verify that information before it gets added to the ledger uh, that all these nodes are, are holding. And that ledger is made up of a string of blocks. That's why this is called blockchain. So after a certain interval, all of the information is stored in a block, and that block gets added to the chain. So with blockchain, it's important to understand how blockchain actually adds value. And there are a few key features here that have driven a lot of the interest. First, it's decentralized which means that you don't need to trust one single authority to get the ledger right. It's stored on many nodes that can cross-reference each other and validate changes made, which makes it more secure than a centralized system. Any participant can see the information that's stored in the blockchain, so it offers transparency, but also pseudo-anonymity. And the ability to integrate smart contracts is one of the most compelling elements here, because you can embed a digital contract into the blockchain so that for example, when my smart meter shows that I've used a certain amount of power, I can automatically pay the supplier for it. So let's look at an example of how we can use blockchain to solve problems in power. We talked about earlier the growth of distributed generation and how that makes the distribution system much more complicated to operate and to plan for. 
But distributed generation, along with other types of distributed energy resources, so home batteries or, or power-consuming systems like your thermostat, these can actually be a great thing for the grid if we manage the complexity of them because they give us these assets in the distribution system that we can use to help avoid the need for system upgrades or to help control voltage. But in order to do that, we need a scalable way of accounting for and logging the power provided by these devices so that eventually we can use them for providing value to the grid. So the trend we're looking at here is the growth of distributed generation. And the problem that we need to solve is that we need to be able to deal with many very small transactions of power, which is very different from the large transactions that we're used to dealing with today. So how does blockchain help? Well, the last two years have seen a swarm of new players developing blockchain platforms for energy transactions, especially in the peer-to-peer -peer space. And one of these developers that I'll talk about now is, is PowerLedger. So PowerLedger is an Australian company and they've built an energy trading platform using a consortium blockchain rather than a public or a private blockchain. So they have several parties, like the energy retailers that they're working with, that are designated as validation authorities that control that blockchain. And they've done a couple of things to make this platform scalable. So one of those is in the consensus mechanism that they use. So if you're familiar with, with Bitcoin, which I assume most people are, Bitcoin uses a consensus mechanism called proof of work, which as the name implies is very work intensive. But PowerLedger uses a different approach here called proof of stake, and that reduces the energy intensity of, of the process. Another thing they've done is, is they've implemented state channels, and state channels are a lot like uh, running up a tab in a bar. So it's the idea that you can batch transactions, tally them up off of the chain, and then batch them and, and log them all in one go. So doing those things, they can now reach about a million transactions per second on their consortium blockchain. And for PowerLedger's market entry, they've focused on peer-to-peer -peer energy trading, which is basically an accounting exercise rather than something that really makes changes in the physical world and, and can help the grid. But looking forward, there are plenty of opportunities to apply this approach to something like voltage control in the distribution system. Now, blockchain isn't the only way to manage these types of transactions, but it's certainly a very valid approach for this application and one that can streamline the process. All right, so let's look at one more technology here. Let's look at edge computing. Now, edge computing isn't necessarily new, but just as we saw everything move to the cloud over the last decade or so, we're starting to see more analytics come back to the edge now because we really need that capability there in some applications. And there are a few big drivers there. One of those is latency, so pushing data to the cloud to analyze it can slow things down. And in power, some applications really do require very rapid decision making. The volume and rate of data generation is another factor here because that means that the transmission and, and storage of data become limiters. So analyzing data at the edge means less data that needs to be sent over communication networks and less data that needs to be stored. And then there's also privacy that's a concern here. So when you're transmitting data, you've, you've made it vulnerable to being intercepted. So keeping that data on site can reduce the risk. Of course, this doesn't come without a cost, and that cost is that hosting a complex set of algorithms for analyzing your data on this tiny little edge device can be tough. And that's a whole other topic that I won't get into right now, but suffice it to say that edge computing is one of the biggest topics that our clients are asking us about right now. So let's look at an example of how edge computing can help solve problems in power. And for this one, I want to look at grid reliability. So we talked earlier about the risk that we're facing with old infrastructure and increased natural disasters. And I showed you a picture of Puerto Rico earlier. I want to be really clear here. I'm not saying that a software update would have prevented the disaster that we're seeing in Puerto Rico right now. This is clearly an infrastructure challenge. But there are ways to architect the grid to make it more reliable and resilient in the face of, of storms. And one of those approaches is microgrids. So we can think of microgrids as small sections of the grid that are self-powered. 
and in the event of an outage, they can separate from the rest of the grid and continue to function indefinitely. And cost is the most important barrier to seeing more microgrids within established grids in, in developed countries, but there are some other challenges too. So for example, the microgrid itself is typically vulnerable with a single point of failure in its centralized control system. So if that controller is damaged, the entire system won't function. So the trend we're looking at here is vulnerable infrastructure, and the problem that we need to solve is the reliability of microgrids themselves. And so at this point, it's probably pretty clear how edge computing can help. Let's take a look at an example of a company that's doing this. So Hala Technologies is the company I want to talk about here. Hala is an early stage startup developing a microgrid control system. And they've used a decentralized architecture, which has become increasingly common over the last couple of years. Conventionally, a microgrid will have a central controller on site that coordinates with all of the assets and, and sends them commands. And Hala, in addition to that, puts a piece of hardware that acts as a local controller on each asset in the microgrid. So each generator or battery or large load might get its own controller. And these controllers will locally run analytics for droop control, and droop control is, is basically a process for keeping the voltage in the right range. And they each also run machine learning algorithms to improve their performance. So under normal operation, these local controllers will be communicating with a central controller, but in the event of a failure to the central controller, they can also operate autonomously and in concert with each other to keep the microgrid running. And beyond that extra reliability benefit, this approach is also much more modular than a centralized system, which means that it's faster to set up and makes it simple to change the microgrid components over time. So for example, if you wanted to add a generator um, or a new battery to the system in the future, you'd be able to do that more easily. So edge computing here makes for a better, more reliable microgrid. So we've now looked at a few examples of how to use digital tools to solve problems in power. And I want to take a step back now to look at these examples in the context of the toolbox. Because you might have noticed every example that I just gave uses more than one digital tool. So for edge computing, it wasn't just edge computing, it's edge computing plus AI plus IoT. And that's a really important element here. So these deployments that are truly useful and impactful in power are more than just connected devices. Connected devices alone gets you smart meters, and smart meters are definitely not going to save us. And that's why it's so important to understand the tools that are at your disposal, because you're going to need to put them together in the right way. All right, so we've talked about the challenges in power, and we've talked about the technologies we can use to tackle these problems, but getting the technology right isn't enough. Because I talked about Utopus, the company that's using AI to improve wind and, and solar production forecasts. There are lots of other companies and research groups that are applying machine learning to improve renewables production forecasts. I talked about PowerLedger, the company using a, a blockchain energy transaction platform. There are lots of companies using blockchain to build transaction platforms for distributed energy resources. I talked about Halo, the microgrid controls companies. Same thing here. There are several companies exploring decentralized control systems for microgrids using edge computing. And here at Lux, we know that the company with the best technology is not necessarily the winner. The right business model and the right strategy are really critical. So let's talk about how to get those right. Let's talk about sort of the, the playbook for doing this correctly. So here, I have three guidelines for how to make your digital deployment in power successful. And I wanna talk about each of these one at a time, but just to quickly run through them, those three are, first, get the regulation right, second, get the partnerships right, and third, get security right. So let's talk about each of these one at a time. So starting with regulation. Don't wait for regulation to catch up to the pace of innovation. It is absolutely critical that we understand the regulations that will impact a deployment in power, 
but regulation doesn't change quickly. So if you wait around for the opportunity to be clear from a regulatory standpoint, you'll probably be too late. So the trick here is to find a workaround that will let you get your solution in the field right now so you can demonstrate its value, reach a reasonable scale, stay ahead of the competition, and even get the attention of regulators so they can help you if, if there's a regulatory component of what you're looking to do. And I want to talk about an example here, a startup called GreenSync in Australia that's, that's really done a good job of this. So several minutes ago, we talked about peer-to-peer -peer energy trading as a stepping stone to using distributed energy resources as assets for the distribution system. And GreenSync wanted to be able to use these devices for distribution utility services and, and other services as well right away, but regulation is a big problem here. So in developed countries, regulations usually make it very difficult, if not impossible, for any individual to become a legal energy supplier. So in other words, if I were to put a battery in my garage, I wouldn't legally be able to sell the electricity that I stored in it. But GreenSync found a workaround, and almost a year ago they launched a marketplace called DEX, the Distributed Energy Exchange. And through DEX, instead of having participants sell energy, so selling kilowatt hours, which would be illegal, they lease time on equipment. So if I've got that battery in my garage, I might offer up the use of my battery to my distribution utility in exchange for a payment from the utility. And in doing that, in taking this approach, GreenSync has now built up a massive coalition of more than 30 partners from all different parts of the value chain. So these are distribution utilities, they're retailers, equipment developers, they're even peer-to-peer -peer trading companies like PowerLedger that we mentioned before. PowerLedger is a, a part of this project. And they've also included in this consortium, they've included several Australian regulators. And these are folks who would be key to creating the right regulatory environment for a market like this to exist. So they've gotten all the right people together by finding a workaround that would let them launch. And this has allowed them to build up the momentum and the relationships that they need to really show the value of their solution. So again, don't wait for regulation to catch up with innovation. Understand the implications here, but look for a workaround to get your, your solution out in the field. All right, second, partnerships. So forming the right partnerships is really important here. And alliances between digital companies and energy companies can be mutually beneficial in some powerful ways. So let's look at the opportunity. Energy companies have unique access to customers, to the infrastructure, to the regulators, and also just general industry know-how. And all of these are things that will really help a digital company take its solution out of the lab and put it in the field. So huge benefits for digital companies here to pair up with energy companies. But on the other side, there's a lot of value for energy companies to get from partnerships with digital players as well. In the buy versus build decision, buying is generally going to be a really good strategy for energy companies that don't already have a strong software development team, which is many of them. And it's important to highlight here that energy companies know energy really well, but they might not fully understand the potential that digital solutions can bring. And so to talk about that, I'm gonna pick on Con Ed here for a minute. And Con Ed is the distribution utility that serves New York City. And last summer they had to submit a plan to the state um, and, and part of that plan was a, a budget and part of that budget was an IT budget. And in their five-year IT budget, they set aside $5.6 million for analytics. And if you dig into what they're gonna spend that money on, this is one of the things that they said. So they said this category is less developed in guidance and experience, um, and there were a couple of their quotes along, uh, quotes along those same lines, but basically what they're saying is they know that they need an analytics platform, but they're not really sure what it will look like, and they're not really sure how they'll use it. So this is a case where a strong partner who really understands analytics would be useful for Con Ed. And if I were them, I'd be looking at a third-party analytics provider, someone who's strong in the space and can really fill in the blanks and, and make this successful, 
And luckily, this story has a happy ending because that's exactly what Con Ed did. So earlier this year, Con Ed brought on C3IoT as its analytics partner. And C3's platform is one of the strongest out there in this application. So again, the right partnerships are really important here. Um, there's a lot of value to be gained from partnerships between energy companies and digital companies. And on the energy side, there are a lot of really strong digital companies that you can work with. So you don't need to build these solutions yourself. You can partner with some of these companies. All right, finally, let's talk about security. And security is, is important here. And frankly, security is important in any application, but it's particularly important in power deployments for three reasons. So first, we're talking about critical infrastructure. So a hack can mean that people lose access to electricity, which can be fatal when communities lose power, hospitals lose power, nursing homes lose power, and people can die. This is a bad situation. And we've already seen that it's certainly possible for hacking to cause a power outage. We saw in Ukraine at the end of 2015, the first ever cyber attack that caused a power outage, and it won't be the last. Second, the industry is already under heavy attack. About a third of all industrial cyber attacks are targeting energy specifically. And finally, we've been talking about distributed energy resources. These, these things we've been talking about, your solar panels or, or your thermostat, your smart thermostat, these are typically not connected through private utility communications networks like we might see grid assets connected through. They, they usually are going through your router or a mobile connection, and that makes them particularly vulnerable. So that we now have all of these new, inherently less secure attack surfaces that can be targeted within the grid. And you'd think and you'd hope that vendors would be extra careful because of this, but in many cases we're seeing the same mistakes made in energy applications that we see made with much less critical, uh, uh, critical devices like your connected coffee machines. So we look at edge security and IoT security quite a bit here at Lux, and IoT in every industry is bringing amateurs into connectivity, and energy is no different. So I want to give an example here of bad security. Um, some of you might have seen these headlines uh, just a couple of months ago. There was a study released by a Dutch researcher that found 21 vulnerabilities in SMA solar inverters for rooftop solar. And with those vulnerabilities, hackers could potentially gain control of these inverters and switch them off and on, which would wreak havoc on the grid. And in the worst case scenario, if you had a high enough concentration of these in a single area, you might even cause an outage. So this is bad, obviously. But it gets worse because these vulnerabilities, in a lot of cases, weren't nuanced issues. They just ignored basic security hygiene. So like this quote from, from the report, they didn't change the default passwords. This is the type of mistake that you'd expect your not very tech savvy friend to make when they're setting up their, their router password and you walk in and the password is written on the, the, the door that Wi-Fi password is password. This is not what you'd expect from one of the global leaders in solar inverters. But nonetheless, this is what's happening right now in 2017. And I'm focusing on SMA here, but this isn't just SMA. This same researcher found vulnerabilities in several types of inverters before deciding to do a deep dive on SMA specifically. And it's not just inverters either. We've heard these same stories about unsecured smart meters and smart thermostats over and over and over again. So if you want to deploy a digital solution in the power space, start by using best practices for cybersecurity. And if you don't know anything about cybersecurity, get yourself a partner who does. You don't want to be the vendor whose system is responsible for the next cyber, cyber attack that causes a power outage, and there will be a next one. So secure your devices first, and then keep securing them as they're out in the field. All right, so to wrap up, we've talked about why we need digital. We've talked about the tools that we have at our disposal, and we've talked about the guidelines for doing this well. And to solve these problems in power, you need to understand all of those pieces, the problems, 
the tools, and, and the, the strategies. Still, this isn't easy. We'd love to help. So please feel free to type a question into the Q&A box or send us an email, and we can keep the conversation going. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Katrina. We will now be taking questions, as Katrina mentioned, uh, on the presentation. You can, again, type these questions into the Q&A box, and we'll answer as many as we can uh, during this session. Um, and with that, we'll get started. There's many uh, questions pouring in already. Um, the first one is specifically about blockchain, and um, uh, some actually there's multiple questions where people have pointed out that blockchain is very energy intensive. Um, there's a quote from the World Economic Forum that energy consumed and computational capability and blockchain network is unsustainable, uh, and therefore it wouldn't make sense for energy applications to use um, blockchain. So how is that being addressed? Uh, what are some solutions to that? Absolutely, and this is definitely something that's, that's worth discussing. Um, you know, Bitcoin, uh, sort of the, the most widely known blockchain application, Bitcoin is absolutely very energy intensive. And I mentioned earlier that Bitcoin uses a proof-of-work consensus mechanism, and proof-of-work is, by definition and by intent, is very energy intensive. So it's, it's several tens of kilowatt hours per transaction logged with Bitcoin. So very, very energy intensive, but it doesn't have to be that way. And there are other ways of approaching blockchain that can really reduce the energy consumption. So I mentioned Power Ledger and, and what they're doing to improve the scalability of their solution. And there's a couple of things that they've done, and that's one, one approach here. So I mentioned they're using proof of stake as a consensus mechanism. So this is an alternative to proof of work, and it's much, much less energy intensive. So proof of stake is a consensus mechanism that's based on sort of the amount of, of cryptocurrency stake you have, as well as the age of that, that currency. Um, and and in, doing, in using that approach, you can really reduce the energy consumption of a, a transaction down to almost a negligible amount. Um, the other thing I mentioned that Power Ledger is doing is state channels. So I mentioned this is a lot like running up a tab at a bar. So the idea is you can take some of those transactions and list them and record them off of the chain, batch them up, and then log them to the chain in one go. So again, it's fewer transactions that you need to actually log. So that's one approach. Another approach um, in terms of consensus mechanisms, uh, there's a group out of Austria called Grid Singularity that some of you might have heard of. And Grid Singularity um, is, uh, has, has launched a um, foundation called the Energy Web Foundation with the Rocky Mountain Institute. And the blockchain that they are building there um, is using a proof of authority consensus mechanism. And proof of authority is an entirely different approach here. It essentially sets up a group of authorities that can create new blocks within the blockchain. And some of you might be thinking, well, that violates the security advantage of a blockchain. The whole point here is you've got to do a lot of work to, to prove that you're, um, you're validating this, this transaction. Um, but I think one of the important things to note in energy applications is right now when we're dealing with energy transactions, we already have a trusted authority, somebody that we trust, and that's your utility. You pay your electricity bill every month, and you have no problem trusting the utility in that case. And so approaches that designate an authority that is already somebody you trust, like your utility, can be perfectly valid in the energy space. It doesn't have to be um, the, the application that we see with, with Bitcoin, where you really don't trust anybody you're interacting with. It's very different in energy. You can really take advantage of these, um, these, these different approaches. And I think that's one of the reasons that um, it's important to understand that blockchain is not the only way of doing this. Because again, um, it's, this is not a situation like where we're dealing with a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. There's there's, there's individuals or, or rather companies that we trust within the system to handle these transactions. Great. 
the next question is about cybersecurity and specifically what the barriers to good cybersecurity practices are in these deployments today. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, we've talked to a, a lot of people. We've, we've attended a lot of conferences, had a lot of conversations in this space. And, you know, technology as a barrier is certainly something that's, that's worth considering here, but it's not all technology. And I would even say that technology is definitely not the major problem in cybersecurity today. Um, there's really a lot of operational or, or cultural challenges that, the, the, that these players are facing. And I think the SMA case is a, a good example of this. Right when they when they had that password issue, that's not a technology barrier. That's not a technology gap. It's it's just process. It's the way that they designed their system, um, and uh, and and we've been hearing a lot about sort of the the challenges, especially within utilities, of having uh, sort of the collision between IT and OT operational technology. Um, I've even had uh, I had somebody I was speaking to go so far as to say that these two groups hate each other and they hate working together. It can be very difficult to, to have these groups speak the same language. And then there's also some issues around sort of buck passing and, and uh, challenges with um, understanding that or really treating cybersecurity like everybody's responsibility instead of just the responsibility of IT. Um, I think one example of, of sort of where this needs to go is if we look at SMA, you know, there's really a lack of security by design within what they did. And security by design is really the right way to take this. So um, if, if you look at how they responded, for example, to that password issue, um, SMA sort of responded and, and said, well, you know, the passwords aren't our problem because we give the, the inverters to the installer and it's really the installer's responsibility or the owner's responsibility to change the password, not ours. And that's just poor design, right? That's, that's not something that you should be leaving to somebody else. And so a better way to design this would be to force a password change. And to SMA's credit, that's what they're doing now. They're, they're implementing new um, uh, changes that will require users to change the password, that will require them to change it to a stronger password. Um, so they're, they're doing the right things, but they didn't design it in the right way in the first place. So I think designing for security is a really important concept here. Okay. Uh, next topic is around the application of AI, and you mentioned that AI is widely used in power already. Um, besides the example you used, what are some other places it's being applied? Sure. So we can look at a few different situations, and um, I'll start by talking about if we look at sort of the concept of, of virtual power plants. So virtual power plants take individual devices within the distribution system, so these distributed energy resources like um, batteries or uh, large loads or distributed generation, and they aggregate them together and make them function almost as if they were a power plant together. Um, and in virtual power plants, there are several different places where we're seeing AI applied. So one of them is just in controlling the individual pieces of equipment themselves, so learning how this equipment reacts to certain commands and being able to control it better in the future by, by learning from that. We're also seeing AI in forecasting, so there's a need here for forecasting the demand of any individual site so that you can understand the availability of that piece of equipment, um, as well as forecasting market prices if you're looking to bid into a, a market and you want to understand what's going to happen with that. We can also look at applications like um, home energy management. So if you've got a solar system and a battery and, and a smart thermostat, taking these pieces and putting them together and, and coordinating them, um, there are several places where we're seeing AI here. So again, forecasting demand um, is another place uh, where, where we're seeing um, AI used and applied. Um, there are also ways to apply this to um, looking at your, for example, the production from your solar system, taking into account the fact that maybe there's a tree in your front yard that casts a shadow over your solar panels during a certain time of the afternoon and factoring that into your forecast. 
So again, machine learning in that application can, um, can improve your forecasting of, of production from your own solar panels. We're also seeing AI applied in load disaggregation from appliances so that you can read the signals from your meter and learn from that when your microwave is turning on and turning off. Um, so a few different things there. And then beyond that, we're seeing it in um, the way that we manage the grid and, and plan. So for example, you can take incomplete data sets of smart meter data and extrapolate and use that for, for grid planning. Um, and we're even seeing it in marketing is the other thing. So um, looking at how utilities might want to market a special tariff to customers that already have a smart thermostat. Um, we've seen applications of AI that look at meter data and use that to determine which customers in a utility's territory already have smart meters. So it's pretty ubiquitous. There are a lot of different applications in power for AI. Okay, the next question is about the trends and challenges you outlined in the, the first portion of your talk. And you mentioned uh, renewables, you mentioned distributed generation and aging of infrastructure as big issues. Um, so this, this uh, attendee points out other additional things that are, might be related like climate change, regulatory environment, electric vehicles. Um, the question is basically, are there more challenges then you listed and kind of what do you think the relevance of those are to, to this talk? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say all those things. So climate change, I think, often is factoring in in the sense of, of growth in policies for renewables. Um, so I think a lot of what we're seeing there is, is coming alongside the renewables growth. Um, I think that regulatory changes are certainly an issue in, in the power sector more broadly. And the, the regulatory landscape is very fragmented from um, state to state within the U.S., from country to country within Europe. Um, it's, it's very, very fragmented. So regulatory um, uh, issues are certainly a, a factor here as well. And I think electric vehicles um, is a really interesting topic because we can think of electric vehicles um, very similar to the way we might think of something like distributed generation in terms of how it affects the grid. Because we can think of electric vehicles as a challenge to the grid um, in the same, you know, similar sense as distributed generation, but also an asset to the grid if we use it correctly. So for example, in the way that we charge electric vehicles, um, the requirement to, um, to, to charge at, at home, let's say you, you plug in your vehicle at home, at home when you get home from work, we might see a surge in, um, in electric vehicle power consumption at that time, which can cause sort of the secondary peak in the evening. But if you're able to control it with something like smart charging, where you can delay the charging or control the rate of charging, then you can uh, sort of leverage that resource and, and help to flatten out that peak. Um, similarly, something like fast charging requires a lot of uh, electricity usage and sort of surges, and you can deal with something like uh, on-site uh, um, power generation and storage to be able to, to mitigate that, um, or on-site uh, on batteries. And then finally, if we look at something like vehicle-to-grid, now vehicle-to-grid is actually treating the electric vehicle's battery as if it was a, a grid energy storage resource, so not just controlling the rate of charging, but also injecting power back into the grid through the battery. Um, this sort of takes it one step for, further and, and allows you to, to use that battery for all sorts of purposes for the grid. Now, of course, there are limitations there, and I, I won't go too deep into that, but I would think of electric vehicles as sort of a strain, but also an advantage or a benefit to the system, depending on the way that you're, you're able to use them. Okay. Uh Perhaps related to the discussion of microgrids, uh, in your opinion, does the benefit of digitizing control architecture of a power system outweigh the cost, both financially uh, and the possible security risks? 
I think that it's going to depend on the situation that you're in. And I think more and more we're seeing um, utilities that are in a position where they've got a lot of distributed generation on their grids, they've got a lot of um, renewables on their, their grids, and in dealing with the, um, the challenge that those, those uh, trends are creating, um, the, the advantages very much outweigh the cost. I think more and more looking towards the future, it will, it will certainly trend in the direction of digitizing will, will be very advantageous. Um, I could certainly imagine that there are cases today where it might be might be difficult and and, um, and and a more difficult case to make. But I think looking towards the future, the direction we are going is digitized. And the more we see these um, these sort of trends continue to progress, the more it will shift in that direction. The more advantageous it will become for for us to um, to to really have that that digital connection on the grid. Okay, so we have time for a couple more questions, and then I think we'll wrap up. Um, the next one is a general question about what incumbent utilities can do to mitigate the challenges from new renewables that you point out. So I, I think this depends on the, um, the, the, the type of utility, but I think if we're looking at sort of just the general challenges to the grid that, that renewables pose, um, I mentioned earlier sort of better forecasting of renewables is one element here, just having better visibility. But we're also seeing things like, for example, um, high-resolution high controls for renewables. So um, ways of uh, using uh, tools like synchrophasers to be able to, um, with, with much better resolution than SCADA systems, to be able to control um, and, and understand what's going on in the system when you do have a lot of renewables. So that's one, um, one approach here. Another thing I would point out is in terms of grid planning, I think there's a lot of opportunity to, um, to, to, um, to sort of implement better grid planning systems as we face more and more renewables, especially when we're talking about distributed renewables. So allowing, for example, a distribution utility to use a tool that would help it understand the impacts of the growth of distributed solar within its network and what that might mean for uh, the, the need for it to um, upgrade or, or, excuse me, put in um, upgrades in certain parts of the system. Um, so whether it really truly needs to upgrade a, a certain feeder or a certain substation um, or whether that upgrade can wait. Um, and, and doing that, that planning based on um, an understanding of the impacts that distributed generation has on the system. So I think there are a couple of different angles that, that we can look at here. There's, there's sort of a lot of uh, different pieces depending on, on the role of that specific utility. Thanks. And the, I think the final question that we'll have is, is about whether these digital solutions are appropriate for emerging markets like South America as well mm -hmm. as developed markets? Are, are those emerging markets ready for kind of these digital tools? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that's a great question. I think we've seen um, a lot less, I would say, in general um, in emerging markets, but that doesn't mean there's not opportunity there. Um, I, I think that uh, even more so as we, we look towards the future, if you look at, for example, what's going on in China, you know, China has um, enormous growth in, in renewables, and so there's even an argument that, that uh, these tools might be um, particularly useful in an environment like that where we're seeing um, more and more renewables growing on the, on the grid. Um, so I certainly wouldn't say that there's not opportunity in, in emerging markets. I think that most of the, the um, development we've seen so far has been in developed markets, but I do think that looking forward there will be opportunities in emerging markets. Great. So thank you, Katrina, and thank you, everybody, for submitting questions. If we didn't get to your question, please contact questions at luxresearchinc.com, uh, and we will route your question appropriately. Um, so that concludes our webinar for today. The slides will be available to all attendees within 24 to 48 hours. Uh, and 
Uh, questions submitted by our current clients will be answered directly for all other questions. A representative from our business development team will be in touch with you shortly. Uh, and with that, we'll wrap up. So thank you, everybody, for joining, and thank you, Katrina, for presenting.